This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Postal Service says it's on the verge of overcoming its long-term financial problems. The agency plans to spend $8 billion next year on capital investment, including its next-generation fleet of delivery vehicles. Meanwhile, postal officials say they're ready for the upcoming holiday season, whatever form that takes. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman joins me with the latest. And, Jory, let's start with those finances. Still losing $6, 7 $8 billion a year? What's going on? On the surface here, it seems like more of the same. USPS ended fiscal 2021 as its 15th consecutive year of net losses, which isn't great, but when you you drill down a little bit further, you see that it ended the year with a $4.9 billion net loss. Also not good news, but if you look yet even further here, you realize that's about half of the $9.2 billion loss it reported in fiscal 2020. And USPS says this isn't a fluke. This is a sign of trends to come here. It expects Congress to pass the Bipartisan Postal Service Reform Act next year. And when it does, USPS expects to end the following year, fiscal 2022, with a $1.2 billion net loss. And it's on track at this point to break even as early as fiscal 2023 or, you know, as late as 2024. But that is right on the horizon here. And they're narrowing the losses, as you've just outlined. How are they doing that? What is causing them to reduce those losses? On one hand, the Postal Service is charging more and relaxing its service standards. The service standards apply for about 40% of first-class mail, and it's allowing an extra day or two for these pieces of mail to get delivered. What that extra time buys the Postal Service is it's able to move more of its mail off of air carriers that it's contracting for and onto trucks that it owns. And so moving more of its network onto ground transportation is a real cost saver. But when you zoom out a little bit, it's it's also worth pointing out that Congress has given the Postal Service about $10 billion in COVID aid, and it's spent most of that already. And it's on the hook to get about $6 billion for electric vehicles and the infrastructure around it as part of the Build Back Better Act. So the Postal Service is very adamant on being a self-funded entity, and it has to be legally. But when you look beyond that, there is a lot of assistance it's getting At this recent meeting of the USPS Board of Governors, we heard from Chief Financial Officer Joe Corbett, and he says that USPS really does need to make some upgrades no matter how you pay for it. We have starved this organization for a long period of time to the detriment of, frankly, of the organization and of the American public. We're looking to really make some pretty large investments. And maybe they could ship some of the mail by Amtrak so the two big organizations could uh, subsidize one another. And, Jory, we mentioned capital investments, including the vehicles. What else? So that is the big part of this $8 billion in capital investments that USPS is looking to make. That'll be not quite $5 billion, but... As far as the other big investments here, they're going to spend more than a billion dollars on facility upgrades and $1.4 billion on processing equipment. And at this meeting, we also heard from Postmaster General Louis DeJoy, and he said that these capital investments are really a sign that the USPS is no longer on life support. It's not fighting day by day, hand to mouth, that it's really being put on a path for long term success. With these investments and new operating disciplines, we will set this organization on its path for a bright future as envisioned. And what does that future look like? Well, we see a postal service that is the preferred delivery provider 
in the country delivering mail and packages to each American household and business six and seven days a week in a reliable and affordable manner. And that's Postmaster General Louis DeJoy. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. And, Jory, what are relations like between the Board of Governors and DeJoy? Are they responding well to the changes that he keeps pushing? A majority of the board seems to be on board with how DeJoy is approaching the organization and making these changes. But there are some internal divisions within the board, and that really came to a head when the board reelected its chairman, Ron Bloom, for another term. Two of President Joe Biden's picks to sit on the board, former Deputy Postmaster General Ron Stroman and Anton Hajar, who is the former general counsel for the American Postal Workers Union, they requested a delay for this election, but were ultimately overruled by the board. And they tried to make some comments and were overruled. And when it was finally put to a vote, they both voted against Bloom's reelection. Although this may be a short term victory for the board, Bloom's tenure is really limited here. He is currently in a holdover year for his term, and his last day that he's able to serve is December 8th. And so President Joe Biden has not yet indicated whether he intends to renominate Bloom. But even if he does, that doesn't give the Senate a lot of time to confirm that nomination. And what we're really looking at here is a distinct possibility of the board trying to find a new leader in the middle of its peak season operations. Well, luckily, the Postmaster General and the chairman of the board of governors don't exactly deliver the mail personally. Jory, you're also reporting that the Postal Service is getting some strong reaction from its own employees for the moves it's been making. Right. This was the first in-person meeting of the USPS Board of Governors, and we got to hear from a pretty wide spectrum of the public in terms of how they're affected by these USPS changes. One of the people we heard from is Kimberly Carroll, who is a local president for the American Postal Workers Union in Iowa. She said that some of her coworkers and herself have faced increased hostility and potential violence as a result of service changes. Customers are waiting five plus days for mail and packages to arrive. They are dealing with late fees for paying bills. And she said that customers are really taking out a lot of these frustrations on frontline employees. I have been a victim of aggression in the workplace, and I believe it is a direct result of the implementation of the delays in the plan and our inability to meet the expectations of our customers. And that was Kimberly Carroll, who is the local president for the American Postal Workers Union in Iowa. Well, I'm always nice to my mail carrier and because I never know what I'm supposed to be getting in the mail in the first place. So I'm happy to get whatever they bring. And what about the preparations for the holiday season? Well, every year, USPS somehow seems to break its record for packages, at least. And it's always a do or die kind of moment here. DeJoy says that the Postal Service is ready. They're ready to avoid a lot of the delays that uh, were apparent last year. And in order to prepare for everything, USPS has hired 40,000 seasonal workers, converted 33,000 employees to career status, and installed dozens of package sorting machines across the country. All told, all these investments will make the Postal Service able to process an additional 4.5 million packages a day. And when you look at last year, they delivered more than a billion packages during this peak season. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Thanks so much for that update. Thanks, Tom. Be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. 
During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual, uh, afloat commands. Uh, The first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, And then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, It's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin and what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from sea to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career. But really, it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, 
what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to, to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions. Uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy, and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy, and... Um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes, when I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, And I might add that um, any proceeds from the book Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, w- WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening, 
to Lessons in Leadership podcast. We'll see you next time. Many of us, if we're being honest, have given up hope on good sleep. But why? Well, if you're like me, you've tried everything and nothing has helped. So if we're not going to sleep well anyway, why try? That kind of thinking is so 2021. It's time to rethink our nights and days and demand more from our sleep. Talk with your doctor about how you can seize the night and day. And visit SeizeTheNightAndDay.com to learn more. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit LiveXLive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.